Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and my guest today is Dr. David Weinstock. Dr. Weinstock is professor of medicine at Harvard University, a specialist in cancer care, and a researcher at the Dana-Farber Institute. Welcome, Dr. Weinstock. Thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure, and it was really uh, the, the, the trigger here for this invitation was an article that you wrote in the New England Journal, published this month, November 2020, that really uh, resonated with me. In fact, uh, it's an article that I wanted to write 20 years ago, but uh, I didn't have any credibility. I figured if I write that article, nobody's going to believe it and nobody's going to publish it. But then someone like yourself, who is in a, a co- I, I, can I say it's sort of a member of the establishment, right? You're a Harvard elite, I think is the term. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you really are. And, uh, you know, you're a professor at Harvard, you run a, I checked out your laboratory on the internet, you know, I don't know, 20 plus researchers trying to, trying to cure cancer, right? And you've been in this business for a long time. And of course you make rounds with the residents at the hospital to, you know, to mentor them. But you had something very interesting to say that I thought was, was pretty courageous. And so I want you to start by just giving a little bit of your background and how you came to write the article and just summarize it very briefly for those who haven't had a chance to read it. I'm going to post the reference here so that other people uh, can read it uh, uh, later. Sure. Uh, Well, the the article is called On Grieving for the Out of Practice, and the out of practice is me. Uh, and what it, it really is about is how to come to terms with uh, the challenges of trying to do it all, trying to run a laboratory and train the next generation, and write, get funded, and so on, and while at the same time maintaining outstanding clinical skills and realizing, in my case, and, and I want to make a really important point that uh, it's not applicable to everyone, but in my case, I had become out of practice um, and uh, it was time to hang up my stethoscope. I started you know, my medical journey like everyone else in medical school, um, a little unsure of exactly what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until I was already through internship and residency and a fellowship uh, and then ready to decide about my scientific direction that I decided to go into the laboratory, ended up really loving it, did a very lengthy postdoc. And so, so I tell people the time from when I left for college to when I got my first job uh, was 18 years. Um, it's an incredibly long and intense training process to be able to you know, be a triple thread. But what I came to realize now, it's been 12 years since I came to Harvard, it's been my group, increasingly focused on the scientific side, is that I just can't maintain those skills at the bedside. So like I said, I, I, um, I feel out of practice and I thought it was time uh, to recognize it and, um, and stop seeing patients. Right. So when I read this, I remember because I I had a similar sort of beginning 
where I was interested in research. I wanted to teach. I wanted to take care of patients. And I did some research projects on the side when I was a neurology resident. And I just remembered they just took so much time. Often they, they would be incomplete. By the time you know I was sort of getting to the end, my rotation would change or my schedule would change and it never got finished. And I very reluctantly admitted to myself that, you know, I'm a really smart, intelligent, driven guy, and I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's never going to happen. And uh, I felt uh, like a failure. And that's the, those are the words that you used uh, in your article. And I think, you know, we, we sort of model ourselves after, you know, William Osler, you know, Dr. Penfield, in my case, you know, famous neurosurgeon, you know, the guys who they did it all right. They they traveled all over the world. They worked in this lab and that lab. <laughs> Dr. Penfield made the homunculus, you know, in every textbook and he cared for patients, you know, even his own sister. And they were a world renowned at everything. But, you know, it's it's 2020 and the, the data input that you need to master to be a researcher, not to mention, I don't think people appreciate, um, my brother is a uh, scientist at the Center for Astrophysics at, at Harvard. And, and he's a scientist, you know, and, and the time he spends reviewing grants, applying for grants, I mean, that's his whole life. He doesn't have time to become a clinician, you know? <laughs> And uh, people don't realize what's involved in getting a grant and being a scientist, or in your case, running a laboratory at the same time. All of these have become, even of themselves, more than a full-time job. You know, I, let me wager that your work week is longer than 40 hours. I'm gonna bet dinner on that. Is that correct? It is, but um, you know, that's what we signed up for. And the one of the really wonderful things about being a physician scientist is that there are many different ways to model your day, to model your career. Um, and, and there's a lot of flexibility in choosing, you know, where I'm going to focus, where I think I can have the most impact, where I get the most gratification. Um, that said, it's exactly what you were talking about. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can be great at everything and do everything. Um, and that's a really central point of the, the piece that I published, which is that that discussion around realistic expectations and, and trying over the course of a career to understand, especially if there's data available, um, about how to craft your career to be most impactful and to get the most gratification, we're, we're really lacking that. We don't, we don't necessarily talk to our trainees about their careers in that way. Instead, we I think the term I said was, we tell them they can do everything well forever, and, and almost no one can do that. Right. You know, there may be a few sort of Leonardo da Vinci's out there, exactly. you know, who just have the, the IQ and the bandwidth and the energy. I remember reading about Parkinson, you know, Parkinson, Dr. Parkinson, who described Parkinson's disease, was an amazing guy. He had other interests in politics. He collected, I think it was shells. He had one of the world's biggest shell collections, you know, from underwater. And they say when he retired, they had to hire three people, you know, three neurologists to replace him. Um, you know, there are people like that. 
and it's, uh, you know, it's humbling when you realize, you, you know, you're not one of them, <laughs> that uh, this is the, the exception and uh, not the rule. But, you know, I think your argument even extends to, I trained as an epilepsy specialist and I worked as an epilepsy specialist for many years. And then I decided I, I enjoyed what the new kind of profession of neurohospitalist. And I became a neurohospitalist and also work in the clinic. But even becoming, so I've kind of become a general neurologist after becoming, after I trained as a subspecialist. But I'm even wondering, is it even possible to be a general neurologist anymore? When I trained, so in, in neurology, this is between 1985 and 1989, we treated patients with multiple sclerosis. We knew what that was. We had one treatment, which was steroids. That was it. Now I think we have 20. All of these treatments have uh, different dosing, different indications, different side effect profiles. Our ha patients have to be individualized. You know, you can't just pick one off the shelf. You got to read the PDR. You got to figure out, is this appropriate for my patient? Is it the best choice? Uh, similarly, even Alzheimer's disease, we have several, we have several treatments. You look at epilepsy, basically, and when I trained as an epileptologist, we used about six drugs. Now there's way more than 20, maybe 30. Again, I, I completely agree. It's the same in oncology. You know, I see, I know you did locum tenens. I, I see emails about, you know, come do locum tenens in Mississippi for a month. And I think to myself, how would I possibly take care of esophageal cancer or colon cancer or, or brain tumors? We used to joke when I was a trainee at Spine Kettering that people were so specialized that you didn't just specialize in breast cancer, you specialized in left breast cancer. Right. Uh, and it's the it's left breast like or the that. right breast. You got to call the right guy, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I, so I, I, so I found myself on the wards not only feeling like um, I was rusty because I hadn't rounded in six months, um, you know, in the first place, but also just seeing that medicine was passing me by. And it doesn't happen the first time you take six months off, but the 10th, 12th, 15th time, now you're you know, you're nine years, 10 years into this uh, and you're hearing about tests or apps or drugs and so on that, that are just new to you. Uh, and even dedicating a lot of time to try to keep up, it's, it's just not the same as being in practice. People who, you know, dedicate their entire professional careers to making sure they're providing the best possible clinical care. So I'm going to extend... Uh... Well, there's a few types. One, I'm going to extend this to the individual man or woman faced with this challenge who also wants to have work-life balance because the amount of knowledge and skill that one needs to accumulate is now beyond what is humanly possible, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, you can go to the library. I mean, neurology, we used to have two journals. We had the green journal and the blue journal. And if you're really dedicated, you could get through most of the green journal, maybe half of the blue journal. It was blue journal was research stuff was kind of tough. Now, 20 plus 30 plus 40 neurology journals. I'm lucky if I can just read the titles, never mind the articles in, in all of them. It's, it's impossible. 
So, all right, well, why don't we just jump to the solution? What are you telling the, uh, the trainees, you know, who say, you know, I, Dr. Weinstock, you know, I want to do research. I want to take care. I don't really know which way to go. You know, what, what should I do? I'm sure that, uh, you know, they look to you as a, as a model. Yeah, in general, I don't like giving advice because I think uh, it's right about 50% of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that people are complex and their individual situations are complex. I ended up where I ended up because of many random things and many things that were beyond my control, like the fact that I was still relatively young. I, I didn't have debt. Uh, those things are, are really important when someone's making a decision. Um, that said, if someone is interested in a career as a physician scientist, I encourage them whole hog. I, I believe it's still the best job that there is, um, but it's a very long training process. So you've got to be in it for the journey and you've got to get goosebumps uh, every once in a while when you discover something that you realize this could impact people uh, in a way. And I, I have knowledge no one's ever had before. Right. There are no there are no more continents to discover. Uh, this is discovery in 2020 uh, and as exciting as it gets. Plus, there's the opportunity to see your discovery, maybe in a couple of years, maybe in 10, maybe more, actually positively impact human beings. Um, if that gets you the goosebumps, um, then I think a physician scientist career is a great way to go. But. What the, what, the, what the piece is really saying is that those are serpiginous careers. They're not um, the career that, you know, Sir Osler had anymore. There are very, very few people who are going to be the department chair and the genius at the bedside, uh, you know, with the chain of 20 people in white coats following them and, you know, publishing lots of papers in Nature and being in the National Academy of Sciences um, what's more likely to happen is that you're going to have to make decisions as your career progresses. And uh, that's a good thing because it implies a lot of autonomy, but it also requires you to recognize that uh, you're going to have to give some things up most likely. What I'm really pushing in the piece is that those decisions right now are really being driven by Gestalt. You know, I go on the wards and I say, I, I'm not really sure I should be doing this anymore. And then I keep doing it for two more years before I finally say, well, no, I, I should stop now because it's COVID or because they're putting in a new EMR system or something and I don't want to learn it or something like that. If I had more structured information uh, that could help me make those decisions, uh, then I think I would have made a decision more quickly. I think I would have made a more informed decision. Uh, and I think it would have overcome a lot of those issues of feeling like a failure you know, that you were talking about. This is the expectation. This is the data. This is the way we think about progression of those careers. Uh, it's very, very different than I'm going to quit because I'm a failure, which is really how I felt uh, about it. Right. I want to ask you, you know, when I was contemplating writing something like this, I thought, you know, I'm going to admit, you know, in public that I can't do it that I'm an inferior being because there are those beings, you know, like David Weinstock who can do it all. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, I mean, that's the model. So did, did you have any hesitancy to sort of bring all this out into public? Um, so I've thought about that. I didn't have a tremendous amount. And I think there are two reasons. One is, um, it, you know, being totally immodest. Um, I'm in a good place in my career, right? I'm a, I'm a chaired professor. I'm well-funded. I have remarkable trainees and already a cadre of, of, of people who I trained who are running their own laboratories and we're doing really good science. Um, and so from that position, it's a lot easier to say, but I'm not good at this, right? If I, if I was struggling, I don't think I would have had the overall ego to be able to do it. The second is that um, I have wonderful colleagues here. And, and I'm not just saying that. I, I will say when I moved from New York, to Harvard, people told me, oh, you're going there, they're gonna eat you alive. It's, uh, you know, they'll stab you in the back and leave you for dead. Um, and, and it's just not true at all. Uh, so I have wonderful colleagues and we, we do talk about these kinds of things. Um, I don't think that my clinical colleagues think I am a great doctor. It's not like I was telling them something they didn't know uh, because I've been leaning on them for years. And I'm sure every once in a while I lean on them and they think they help me and they're nice. And then I get off the phone and they must think to themselves, this guy really should know that. Um, you know, so, so I, I didn't feel like I was really exposing something that wasn't already out there. You know, in a way, I mean, this is good news for everybody. There, there is so much science. There are so many new developments in clinical medicine that it is important to have people who, who keep up that people are better served, you know, by clinicians who are 100% devoted to, I, I loved what you wrote where you said, great artists obsess over their work and that medicine is an art. And I think that's 100% right, is that if you're not obsessing over what you're doing, then you're not doing it as, as good as possible. I think it's an argument why the 100% clinician maybe should, the family practitioner should be getting more respect, <laughs> you know, that, and more realization that this is really a hard job. I, I, I don't, I mean, I could not agree with you more. I absolutely could not agree with you more. I have tremendous respect for my clinician colleagues. And I also mentioned that I, I think in a way, stepping back from the clinic is an acknowledgement of that right? That what they're doing is really hard and I'm not doing it as well as they can. Um, you know, I, I think the, the other point that's important to stress is, you know, I, I also said I really believe in people training as physician scientists because I do think there's a value in spending a lot of time at the bedside while you're also doing science because you see problems uh, and you can focus your research on what are the really important problems. I certainly worry that by stepping away from the bedside, I, uh, I'm going to lose some of that perspective. I received you know, a lot of emails from people I do know or people who I've never met about the piece. And, and that was something that many people came back to over and over was about how um, you, know, you can go to clinical conferences, you can go to meetings, you can read up to date, you can do all these things. Uh, but there's really no substitute for time at the bedside. I, I agree. And, and uh, I want to use this opportunity to invite you to come to Neurology Rounds in Memphis, where I'm an associate professor and heavily involved in the clinical aspect of uh, patients. 
and you can round with us whenever you want to be at the at the bedside, if you want to take that opportunity, whenever you feel you, you're too distant. I know you have many opportunities there in Boston, but... Uh... Yeah, you know, we have, um, we have something that's sort of an intensive teaching service uh, that's usually, you know, a small number of house officers and two or more attendings. Uh, and I thought about whether I should look into something like that. Uh, there I could learn quite a bit about clinical medicine and there's more time per patient and I could continue to, to see patients without worrying that gaps in my knowledge are going to result in gaps in care. Um, of course, you know, most people don't have those kinds of opportunities. Most people are spending too much time thinking about RVUs or um, getting their next grant or things like that. Uh, but, but I do have that opportunity, so I may take advantage of it. Dr. Weinstock, I, I want to thank you for a bringing this, this topic to our attention for publishing your really uh, personal and thoughtful uh, article and uh, sharing your views of where we are in uh, clinical medicine and research in uh, 2020. Dr. Wilner, thank you so much. And thank you for this Art of Medicine series. It's exactly what we need to, I wouldn't say heal the soul, but um, nurture the soul of, uh, of practitioners in 2020. Well, well, thank you. I really appreciate that.